once in our first episode and then never did again is introduce ourselves. <laughs> we probably should do that. Yeah, I was listening to another podcast because I do listen to quite a lot and then it suddenly occurred to me that they introduce themselves like every episode and we were like, all right, what do you need to know? That's all you fucking need to know. <laughs> it's true. A lot of them have like proper nice scripts that they follow every time at the beginnings yeah. and ends and we don't do that. No, we say our names and that's it. Yeah. Anyway, who are you? I'm Dr. Emma Southern. Who are you? <laughs> I'm Miss Janina Matthewson. Miss Janina Matthewson. <laughs> yeah. Writer at large. Uh, yeah, right. If I wanted to be fancy, I'm Miss Janina Matthewson, BPA. Mm. Yeah. What's BPA? Is that performing arts? It's Bachelor of Performing Arts and it sucks because every other school in New Zealand that does a performing arts qualification calls it a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Performance. But oh. my shitty school does not. <laughs> it does sound a bit like something where you'd be like, oh, it's BPA approved. Yeah, it's like, it's just... Or possibly BPA free. <laughs> yeah, it's a bullshit thing. And I think it's because uh, my school didn't require enough uh, written work for the qualification, so oh. they didn't qualify for a Bachelor of Fine Arts. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes you special, and that's okay. Either I mean, way, what, whether what it... writing do you need to do in performing arts anyway? <laughs> well, exactly. Apparently, that's what they—that's what my school decided. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. I think you need to be. Um, yeah. Well, there we go. We've introduced ourselves. Another twelve, thirteen episodes. We'll do it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, wait, anyone who missed it this time is just going to have to wait till then. <laughs> just um, keep listening every week about? and think, who are these people? When will I find out? <laughs> just have to keep listening and eventually we'll tell you. Uh, what are we talking about today, Janina? Uh, today we are answering the question. Uh, we're answering a fun question about Nazis. Who knew yeah. there was something such a thing? The question is, did the Nazis go looking for the Spear of Longinus and was it a powerful but evil holy relic? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, Before we get into it, though, I do want to apologise. I'm very, very warm, so I've left my window <laughs> open. There may be noises, there may be traffic, there may be people strolling <laughs> up and down the street, and I don't care. Um, I'm so That's, damp. England's very hot right now. England is yeah. so hot right now. And, like, it's not just that it's hot, it's that air doesn't seem to be moving. No. So it just clings to you. Um, no, England is very windy until you need it to be windy, and then it stops. Yeah, and I'm used to a I'm used to a very hot but very dry with constant breezes, and this is not what I get here. <laughs> no, yeah. no, just hot and damp. So damp. Yeah, well, um, but we can deal with a little traffic noise. We'll survive. Yeah, I I would say I'm sorry, but I'm not. I value my the the. The sensation of air on my skin more than I value your moderately higher listening pleasure. <laughs> You're alienating our audiences like you wouldn't believe right now. We're so good at this. <laughs> Just like, don't need to know who we are. We don't care about your listening experience. Let's talk about Nazis. <laughs> Let's talk about Nazis. It's good. I think if you make people jump through hoops in order to enjoy something, then they feel like they've got something special out there. Yeah, right? we don't want the casual <laughs> listener. We want someone who's willing to <laughs> hike through the mire. <laughs> yeah, we want someone who knows that this is, you know, that they've worked for this. <laughs> yeah, 
nothing easy for them. <laughs> yeah, so this question came from Bobby Skizzer, who asked us the question about anti-popes as well. So um, Some good questions. Careful, this is well, they are good questions. If we're not careful, this is going to turn into a answering questions for Bob. So mm. we might have to ban him from answering questions at some point. But I think before we get into it, we should do a brief thing on the spear and what it is in, in case yes. uh, people don't know. It is important to know what the spear of destiny is, otherwise known as the spear of Longinus, otherwise known as the holy spear, otherwise known as the holy lance. Um, and it is the lance that was used in the Gospel of John to stab Jesus when he was on the cross. Yeah. So to check if he was dead. Because um, uh, what happens with crucifixion is um, one of the many ways you can die while nailed to a cross is asphyxiation. So if you've not died quickly enough, they used to just break your legs with the club to speed up the process a bit. Um, and they were about to do it with Jesus, and then they were like, nah, I think he's already dead, and someone poked him with a spear to check, and indeed he was dead. I can't argue with poking someone with a spear as a way to check that it was yeah. that they're dead, I suppose. To check slash ensure. <laughs> yeah, it'll work. Yeah. Confirm the kill, Romans. Yes. So that spear, as with lots and lots and lots and lots of things, became a holy relic, basically. There is a holy lance in St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. They don't claim that it's real. They're just like, well, we've got one. This, um, is, <laughs> this is a recreation. <laughs> Dramatic recreation yeah, then, of Holy Spirit. <laughs> there's lots and lots and lots of medieval stories about it basically being kind of magical in some way or being... Or, you know, just it's a holy relic. It's something that touched Jesus, much like bits of the Holy Cross or the manacles that St. Peter were held in mm. or the finger of literally any saint you want to imagine yeah. or... The shroud or, or any scrap of material yeah. that looks like it's 2,000 years old. Yeah, they, it was worth money in the medieval age, in every medieval time, um, and was considered to be holy. So there's lots and lots of stories about it. And then that all came down and then Wagner wrote uh, an opera based on a medieval poem called Parseval, which has the Holy Spear and the Holy Grail in it. And that is basically how it gets into Nazis. Mm -hmm. And then somebody called Trevor Ravenscroft, who is... Uh, <laughs> trying to think of a right way of putting it, but he is... <laughs> Not all there. Uh -huh. Not the sharpest knife so in the knife drawer. We don't know the specific complaint there, probably. <laughs> he is in the realm of, like, Graham Hancock and the fingerprints of the gods people. Mm -hmm. You know them? Who uh believe that, like, life was planted on Earth by aliens mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he basically he believes quite strongly that the holy lance was a real holy relic and a real magical thing mm -hmm. and then he wrote a book which he based on doing some mystical meditation and having contact with a 19th century they're called anthroposophists and it is being a spiritualism basically so a 19th century mm -hmm. spiritualist who 
we will get to these in a bit, uh, strongly influenced the, a lot of the notions that drove the Nazis. And he claimed that Hitler started the war specifically in order to get hold of the Holy Spear and that the Holy Spear gave him magical powers. Sure, fair. I mean, if I was looking for a Holy Spear, the first thing I'd do is invade Poland. So that tracks. Yes. Um, the book is on... <laughs> Google Books and reads like mad fiction (laughs) and has like Himmler makes a replica of the spear because he's just really into it and then they get the spear and like there's a lot of imagine what was in Hitler's mind at this moment and how could he have felt when he was holding this and yeah there's a it's a lot Mm -hmm. and it is primarily based on mystical meditation which to be fair and we'll get to this in a bit the nazis would have thought was fine Mm. yes so because basically the answer is no they didn't go looking for the spear of longinus that is a thing that was made up by a madman Mm -hmm. (laughs) who basically had a dream um (laughs) but they were into some real mad shit yeah. And when I was doing the research for this, so I read a few books for this, and I had to keep, like, rubbing my head in a kind of, what the fuck is happening <laughs> kind of way. Uh-huh. Like, it got to the point where I was... And I never thought that these were words that I would say. I was feeling kind of bad for Albert Speer, who wrote a lot of memos going, can you stop doing that? Because you're going to make us lose the war. And everyone went, we're going to continue doing this. Yeah, because there was there is some extremely mad shit that we're going to talk about. That's very, very good. Um, I thought before we got to the real Buckwild stuff, we should do a quick little look over the history of German nationalism because it's kind of messy and fucked up and I think leads to the sort of... Like, the, there's those ideas that Nazis had about themselves and all of this crazy shit kind of have roots in the beginnings of German nationalism. Yes, it very much does. And like what we talked about ages ago in the World War One episode is that Germany is still a really young country. Like it was not really founded until the 19th century as a proper like unified country Mm. and so a lot of the late 19th century and earlier 20th century was them trying to work out what being a german was in a unified sense that could meld the people of prussia and bavaria and all the other bits of germany together into one yeah unit and it was basically super debated my favorite thing about it is i think that it didn't the it the rise of German nationalism, it didn't, it wasn't a groundswell movement. It wasn't des- the desire of the German people to be uh, united. It was liberal elites who looked at the Dutch and the Swiss and thought, hey, they have a, such a strong sense of identity and we, we <laughs> need to have that. Um, but they couldn't really agree on what would define it. There was debate over whether it would be uh, a shared language, which then brought in complications about the fact that there were some dialects of German that shared less than 40% of mainstream common German at the time. So then was it a shared culture? Was it a shared history? And what do you do about people who have wandered off, who are German, but have wandered off and become heavily influenced by Roman culture? 
So it was really debated and very broad and no one could really lock down what it meant at this point, which is like the early 19th century, the first half of the 19th century. But generally the, the dominant school of thought was that it was self-determinism and cultural identity. And because uh, of things like the invasion of the Holy Roman Empire and uh, the enmity towards France, it became to be to surround ideas of liberal democracy and that kind of thing. Uh, and then, then the revolutions of 1848, because in 1848, where there were just revolutions left, right and centre all across Europe, <laughs> everyone wanted to go. And if I remember everyone rightly, wanted. not many of them succeeded. I think most of them just sort of fizzled out. But that sort of rise in a rivalry between Prussian and, and Austrian interests. And while there was a concerted effort to form a strong German nation state, it didn't happen uh, because there was all this tension uh, so after that, that's when nationalism in this region started to get super military and all these ideas of, of hero warriors and strong fighters uh, began to take hold a bit more and nationalism in general became much, much more conservative and became really obsessed with the Teutonic Order and the success of Teutonic soldiers in the Crusades <laughs> and became a lot about willpower and loyalty and perseverance, which is one of those things that I love about nationalism and proves that it's just basically arbitrary because nationalists always cite general virtues and <laughs> claim that they're inherently whatever country that person happens to be from. Yes. Which is totally what they were doing. There was also a strong desire to be a world power. Um, France and Britain were getting all up in their empires and Germany wanted to compete with them, which led to a lot of colonial bullshit. They colonized a lot of Africa and were super racist about it, obviously. <laughs> and then post, in the beginning of the 20th century, post-World War One, it became a lot more about ethnic and racial background and the idea of the German Volk, which basically means people, and much more about what you inherited from people rather than more modern ideas about citizenship, which basically revolves around, are you here? Have you been here yes. for, you know, long enough to be considered a citizen? Um, and that's yeah. when we end up with Hitler, who came along and was super, <laughs> super extreme in his views of ethnic na nationalism, which we obviously all know. Yes. Um, and part of that project of nationalism was the Volkish project and was the attempt to create and codify almost a German cultural identity and you have the Grimm brothers like we all have the the Grimm fairy tales but they were two academic brothers who you know went round and collected folk tales and collated them and put them together as an attempt to create a, a national mythical identity and to create a, a folklore that was exclusively mm. German. And you have uh, Goethe doing a similar kind of thing, Wagner very much doing the same thing, taking folklore and taking bits and pieces of German kind of peasant culture and turning it into something magical and mystical and mm -hmm. exciting. And this is happening at the end of the 19th century, moving into the 20th century. And at the same time, very specifically in Germany, there are <laughs> three or four very weird spiritualist and... I don't even... I'm trying to think of a nice way of saying it. <laughs> <laughs> 
spiritualist and a kind of esoteric mm-hmm. um, movements going on because the the folklore side of German identity was really, really important and like yeah. completely obsessed with myths and sagas and runes, which Nazis were mad on. But they also had, part of that was becoming obsessed with Arianism, but Arianism comes from this thing called Theosophy, which was created by a woman called Madame Blatavsky in a book that she wrote called The Secret Doctrine. Before, like, just because I didn't even know where the roots of that word were, because the idea of being Aryan actually refers to Indo-Iranians, who were a group who brought Indo-Iranian languages into Europe. But that, yes, so that that is... sort of co-opted. It was co-opted to a certain extent. So basically, Batavsky has... This is how it gets into Nazism. So Batavsky writes this book called The Secret Doctrine in which he claims that there are seven races of humanity to Mm -hmm. a certain extent, of which two haven't happened yet. (laughs) So the original... These these are fantastic. (laughs) I mean, the thing is that this reads like... I go work in a bookshop and we have like a shelf of this stuff, which is the talks about Atlantis and stuff and mm-hmm. people come in and buy them and we try to stay away from them a little bit. But this <laughs> stuff became so important. Like I really cannot emphasize how this is the root of mm-hmm. German Nazism. Like this is the core of it. So hold that in doctrine. your mind while we talk through what it means. Yeah. So there are seven races. The first race, however many years ago, was the Polarians, who were not made of matter. (laughs) And they reproduced, what's the word, parthenogenesis. They just kind of split like cells. Uh, Because they weren't made of matter. They were just spirits in the air. What was there to split if they're not made of matter? I don't know. Don't ask questions. (laughs) (laughs) I look too closely at the theory. It doesn't hold up. Yeah. This is very much like like the ancient Greeks used to have a theory that there was a golden race of men and then there was a, a silver age and then a bronze age and then the time that they were living in, so like the time of classical Athens, was like the iron age of men and everyone was made of shit. Sure. And this is quite similar to <laughs> that, that, the idea that as time goes on, humanity is kind of degrading. So the next race of people were called the Hyperboreans and they were kind of gold and shiny (laughs) and they reproduced by budding, so like a flower. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And after that, there was the Lemurians and the Lemuria is now seen as a lost continent, kind of like Atlantis, but bigger. Okay. And is quite big in esoteric circles still. They were, they reproduced by laying eggs and they were giants. So, um, (laughs) getting closer. Mm -hmm. Then the fourth race were the Atlanteans, which is that Atlantis from Mm -hmm. Plato. And they were bronze. Sure. It's unclear whether the Lemurians were silver. Didn't cover that out. But um, they were kind of shiny and bronze. Then there were the Aryans and the Aryans are kind of like humans now, mm-hmm. but better. And they, the people who are descended from the Aryans, so they're not quite Aryan, but they are descended from Aryans, are the people of Indo-Iran. Mm-hmm. So India and the Mesopotamia and pushing over into Mongolia. Mongolia, Blatowski thinks um, those people are Lemurian. So they're like a step above. She's very into the Mongols. Mm-hmm. And every, so everyone who kind of exists now 
is in that area is descended from the Aryans, of which the people from Indo-Iran are higher than everybody else. Sure. Except Jews and Aboriginal Australians. It's who very, are... like, there are a lot of other people. <laughs> yes. And every... two subsets to just zero in on. Those people she had a particular dislike for, and you will immediately see where the Nazis came in on this. <laughs> So that due to like basically people in Germany got really into this and they managed to link this to German nationalist volkish nonsense by mm-hmm. linking it through Wotanism and they got really into claiming that the books like the Book of Edda, which is a Norse myth, described Lemurians and described Atlanteans and so on and so forth, and therefore Germans were related to that. Right. And then it also pushed a lot into, basically because of that, the Germans put a lot of effort into demonstrating their relationship, their genetic relationship to the people of Indo-Iran. Sure. And that this, when we get to it a bit later, is where all of the Indiana Jones stuff comes from, of them searching for the Holy Grail, because all of they did do quite a lot of archaeological expeditions looking for evidence that the people of Germany, the true... Norse people of Germany were really descended from the people of Iran. (laughs) Um, So just basically this growing obsession with being connected to something ancient that you have no reason not to believe is superior because you can't see it. So you can make up whatever you want about it. Yeah, and it is clearly crackers. Um, (laughs) The next two races are going to come afterwards and eventually she posited that the final race, the seventh race, which doesn't have a name, would migrate to Mercury. Why Mercury, I wonder? It's an odd choice. But I recently read a collection of short stories called Lost Mars, um, which was is a collection of golden age sci-fi about Mars. Um, and a lot of, at the time that she was writing this, so like the 1880s, um, people were writing short stories in which Mars was like colonised by mad like birds that kind of bounce a hundred miles into the air and <laughs> lots like they they thought that the whole solar system was filled with life so <laughs> god knows what she thought was there yeah so you have that and at the same time you have what the guy who wrote the book that a lot of this is from called eric kurlander politely calls border science <laughs> <laughs> which is things like Attempting to find scientific evidence for auras using microscopes <laughs> and writing in journals called Luciferosis and doing a lot of things with runes to determine that Jews were literally made of evil mm-hmm. and eugenics wrapped up in pseudo-religious nonsense. There's a really good book, which is like the base text of Ariosophy, called The Theozoology or the science of Sodom's aplings and the gods' electrons. Right. That's, that just rolls off the tongue. It does, doesn't it? And it doesn't it just make you think, this is a sensible book that I want to pick up. Completely. And it just, like, it gets you in a great headspace for looking for what's coming in the future, just the idea that everyone is bending over backwards to find <laughs> scientific proof of a huge amount of just fairy tales that yeah and everyone like you know like everyone has heard the stories of 
how British and American audiences were obsessed with mediums and seances and mm-hmm. sisters who claimed that they could talk to the dead but actually were just really good at clicking their toes, which yeah. is disgusting. And then invented a Ouija board just to make some money. Yeah, and like it's not that this was specifically located to Germany, no. this obsession with spiritualism and esoteric stuff, and Blatowski was massive, but it's that that combined with the obsession with creating a volkish identity in a really perfect way and then combined with a really specifically germanic thing which is world ice theory which was seems to be only ever popular in germany but was really like hitler really believed this (laughs) that basically it was invented by an austrian called hans horbiger who was looking at the moon and thinking isn't the moon bright and lovely it doesn't seem likely that a big rock would be that bright and lovely. Mm-hmm. Only ice would be that bright and lovely. Naturally, sure. Makes sense. Yeah. And then he was like, well, oh, the moon must be made of ice then. And then he had a dream that he was floating in space and he was becoming bigger and bigger. And when he got to three times his size, he kind of came apart. And he discovered, decided on that basis that gravity wasn't real. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and then he wrote this book about it in which he cre- decided that ice was the kind of earth substance of all things and that the world was created by ice smashing into each other and that everything in the world could be explained by either fire or ice. And like, not everything in the world, everything in the universe, like the creation of planets, the creation of the universe, all of it could be explained by the antagonistic relationship between the earth substances of ice and fire. And therefore, maths, gravity and physics were all Jewish plots to undermine the true strength of the Norse people who were extra strong because they were born in the icy north and therefore had the power of the ice. Sure. Okay. This is going to fuck them over in Operation Barbarossa (laughs) more than you would expect. Uh, yeah, um, they really <laughs> did not me. prepare well for actual cult. Um, by which I mean, this has an influence on Operation Barbarossa. Yeah, so literally thousands of German soldiers died because they were told they were people of ice and didn't need to worry about being yeah, cold. Yeah, they didn't need to be cold because the Slavs were considered to be closer to Jews and therefore were cons- thought that they thought that they would just kind of naturally die in the cold and that the Germans didn't need to be protected properly. And that is frankly just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so eye-opening for me researching this because you were always taught in school like the rise of Hitler and that it was kind of this a fairly perfect storm of Germany suffering after world war one and the um what was placed upon them by the winners of world war one and then Mm -hmm. hyperinflation which i have to say in my gcse was blamed on them and then they turn around and blamed the jews Mm -hmm. and that that is and this shows how much more there was to it (laughs) like it was such a perfect mix of esotericism and science that you would not recognize as science now but you totally would in 1914 Mm -hmm. and germans seeing themselves as colonized subjects but also seeing themselves as inherently better than the rest of the world Mm -hmm. and then 
this kind of mystical belief that things could be changed, that it's just such a perfect and very specific storm of yeah crazy on all these levels and like the social the economic the political and the religious that it is wild it's completely <laughs> buck wild and like in a way it's kind of comforting because everything going on was so outlandish in all of these different directions and that really is hopefully i mean <laughs> to knock on wood obviously <laughs> assuming bad things can't happen is the worst thing that the most dangerous yeah. thing to assume but it does seem like a very, very unique confluence of events. Yeah, I mean, it has... I'm always irritated by Nazi references anyway, because I'm like, there's more to the world history than yes. just the Nazis. Like, there's a whole bunch of terrible, terrible fascist things that have happened. Um, and Or just terrible, not even fascist regimes, just terrible regimes that have occurred. You don't have to just go for the one you've heard of. Mm-hmm. And the more I look into this, the less useful a Nazi comparison becomes, um, (laughs) to be honest, because they drew so incredibly heavily on supernatural and esoteric doctrines Mm -hmm. in order to create effectively an entirely new culture and to control that culture to an amazing degree that I honestly don't think it would even be possible to do it now. Because I feel like it's the sort of thing that's never possible to do if you are trying to do that thing. Yeah. But I think, I mean, just in terms of the way their control of the media, their yeah. control of everything was so tight. Yeah. But this infiltrated every aspect of Nazi ideology. And there's this thing where the most of the people who were writing about these esoteric and supernatural elements of Nazism are people like Trevor Ravenscroft, who basically think it's real. Yeah. Um, and are like, oh, yeah, well, Hitler was actually a demon. Yeah, it seems like there's, Which is there's, no, there's no middle ground. You're either like full bore, yeah, they were searching for relics and artifacts and, and supernatural things, or everything was socioeconomic and yeah. uh, practical. And there's and then there's and you strip room, it out. It seems like for just a hey, this was going on. Yeah, <laughs> and I really real. do re- recommend the Kircher book because it's very readable and it's like just came out last year and it's very interesting and it is, oh, it's quite stressful. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, you just, I, it's not stressful. It's just mind blowing. Like their reliance on. Okay, we should tell some stories about the kind of things. Yeah, they what do. what do they actually do? For starters, all right, at one point they discovered that the British were becoming very, very good at establishing where where German ships were and where German U-boats were. Mm-hmm. And they were just really good at finding where they were in the sea. That seems like could, the sort of thing you could do by magic. Doesn't it seem like the only way you could do that would be as if you had magic? Uh-huh. Because they had no idea that the British had developed radar and they had absolutely no idea that their codes had been broken. So their only possible option, instead of thinking, I wonder if they have developed a way to break our codes, they thought it was magic. Mm-hmm. So they believed very strongly in basically cosmic rays that controlled the Earth. And so they built in their navy headquarters, the official, a pendulum. The official yeah, German navy. the official navy. ones. Yeah. In, in Berlin, this is the official thing, <laughs> a pendulum dousing institute. And they put down a little map of the Atlantic 
and then with little squares and they got a little toy boot and they moved it from square to square and one of the many, many, many astrologers and effectively magicians that they had on their payroll. Yeah, they had a huge amount of mediums and tarot readers just having a grand yep. old time on the payroll of the German army. They would hold a pendulum above the little toy boat and if it reacted positively, he would tell them that that was where the location of the battleship was. Mm-hmm. And that is how they led quite a lot of their naval strategy <laughs> for a fair amount of the end of the war. A lot of this was led by a guy called Wilhelm Wolf, mm-hmm. um, who originally got put in a concentration camp in like 1934 and then was released and ended up being Himmler's personal astrologer and the leader of a lot of this stuff. Like he... Whenever you look at what they're doing, all of a sudden Wolf will turn up and be like, Hiya! <laughs> Got a pendulum! Yeah, the, he was also in charge of... So in 1943, when Mussolini fell, he di- Mussolini disappeared, and so Himmler asked Wolf to find Mussolini, and he got... 40 of his mates, some of whom were released from concentration camps, but basically astrologers, to go to a villa. He persuaded Himmler to put them up in a nice villa mm-hmm. where they swung pendulums for two solid months and were like, we just really need some more good whiskey <laughs> in order to do this. <laughs> and that energy is flowing. Yeah, pretty much. And like did all of this stuff and then when eventually Mussolini kind of turned up on an island they were like found him (laughs) (laughs) basically yeah it is and that that would cost an awful lot of money he's just there all the time he was there researching psychic warfare for a while at the ideological research association trying to train people how to kill without regard for personal safety and create super soldiers. And he was there for a while creating an institute for occult warfare. Mm-hmm. He was pretty much everywhere, like just rocking up, being like, I reckon I can help with this and waving a pendulum at people. So that's a thing they did. Uh, a thing that I really like, basically because of the motivation, Himmler had decided that uh, nuclear research was too Jewish. <laughs> Um, yes, he did. So, he did not understand nuclear research, and he considered all things that he didn't understand to therefore be, one, worthless, and two, Jewish. Yeah, so instead of trying to compete with what was going on um, with the Allies' research, he decided to try and build death rays in flying saucers. Yes, he did. <laughs> this is astonishing. And this is, like, you have to be grateful for it because the amount of money and research and time and energy that they poured into trying to build death rays and anti-gravity machines. See, I think it's really important to note this stuff, right? Because I feel like Britain and America in particular, uh, but probably all the allies, are really, really like bigging themselves up about how they defeated <laughs> the Nazis. For a long time. They, like we rescued the world from fascism because we are so strong and so great, but actually that the Nazis fucked up because they were <laughs> they were prioritizing research into death rays. Literal death yeah. rays. Yes. And they were so convinced that they were right and that nuclear technology was fairly unreasonable that when 
after Operation Paperclip took one of all of the weapons researchers off to America, he was convinced, one of the Nazi researchers was convinced that the USA won the war with help from the aliens. Because mm-hmm, how else could they do it? Yeah, that, that was the only way that he could really rationalise it. Do you um, know what this also makes me just, just fills my heart with a little bit of joy? Is how invested we are as a like sort of pop pop culture wise with the idea of a genius Nazi scientist? Yes, we are. We love that idea, and they were doing this shit. <laughs> yeah, it's just just a little beautiful thing. It is, and they were like they really thought that because they were very into ancient aliens, they thought that previous races had had magical powers mm-hmm. to control minds and to wield lightning and the like, and so they tried to recreate that. This is where I started to feel a bit for Albert Speer mm-hmm. because he was the one voice in this that was like. <laughs> Like, literally, there's so many memos in the Kircher book that are just from Albert Speer, who was, if there is such a thing as evil, Albert Speer was evil. Mm-hmm. But he's just writing memos going, can you not spend the money on that, the lasers and death rays and the anti-gravity machine that you are trying to build, <laughs> which was called the bell, and use something that is made up called vortex compression, that was just like a big like cylinder thing filled with liquid that span mm-hmm. that was supposedly compressing a vortex. <laughs> and he just writes all of these memos going, you've just really, like, this is not, it's not going to work. Have you thought of working on something that might work? And thankfully, everyone wrote him off as the madman in the group. Because if they hadn't and they had started investing in atom bombs and actual weaponry yeah. rather than flying saucers... And the death ray is basically a really big lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> um, effectively, like they wanted to like shoot lightsabers. It's bizarre, but they put so much effort into it, inspired by these beliefs and these like esoteric nonsense yeah. that underpinned them. I mean, you've that... got to kind of respect the imagination. They hadn't even seen a Star Wars. <laughs> Imagine how good their Star Wars. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is staggering, and it is. There is a bit right at the very beginning of the Kirchner book where he says, and he's drawing on a book which is not about the Nazis when they're in power, but it's about Nazism as an ideology mm-hmm. called the occult roots of Nazism from the eighties. That you cannot really understand the Nazis unless you understand their relationship with the supernatural. Mm. They were lying in bed reading Nostradamus and writing about it in their diaries about how much they loved Nostradamus <laughs> and they were bringing out pendulums just any second and they were putting lots and lots and lots of money into searching for gold and oil in Bavaria based on something called astrological geography. Uh-huh, sure. And like you can see where you would then get the idea that they were hunting for the Holy Grail and that they were, you know, hanging out in a big castle which yeah. Himmler did have a big castle that he filled with weird shit. Because Himmler was buck wild. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and they did have like all of these astrologers around them. And they did do things like they had a gorilla force that they called the werewolves that walks a very, very fine line between exploiting a very genuine belief in 
lycanthropy and a very useful metaphor. Mm-hmm. They, the German werewolf is not a scary thing. The German werewolf is like a super soldier right? fighting for Germany. And in all of the Grimm's tales and and that he and there's a very popular book called The Werewolf that that they were very very into and it, they didn't really believe in werewolves but they also maybe did a bit <laughs> in the same way that I am the opposite way round obviously I am aware that pelicans are real because I've seen them <laughs> but I don't really believe in them they don't seem very likely but they I do have not seen seem one. very likely yeah I Remember, our friend Sean came to visit me here and we went to Belfast Sea. I think we both, that was the time we were both seeing a pelican for the first time and we both looked at it and were like, I don't believe in them. <laughs> there are pelicans <laughs> in um, in St. James's Park. I don't believe in them. I know, but they're there. Yeah. In, and it, they have this kind of the opposite way round where they know that they're not real. But they, they do believe in them. believe in them. Mm. There's a possibility. Kircher throws this in as an aside, and I think he takes it from a book by Peter Lavander, that maybe there were some crypto historians trying to see the past with mirrors. Right. That's, yeah. I wish that I saw the past when I looked into a mirror. <laughs> I'm quite glad I don't. I <laughs> past is kind of horrible. But... <laughs> But in the past, yeah, he's, had a lot less he's not here. willing to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> he's not willing to back it up, and he's not willing to say this definitely happened. But I feel like because his is a very well referenced book, and mm. I feel like there are maybe enough things that for him to put it in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> enough suggestions that maybe people were at least talking about it. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. You can see why I was rubbing my head a little bit. <laughs> but there is an element in which I can understand it. Like if they they um, ran experience, experiments based on the belief that there was untapped electromagnetic force in the universe. And like, yeah, we did harness like a thunderstorm and turn it into indoor electric lighting, you know? There is, there is an element yes. to which human innovation is about reigning in power that exists in nature. Yeah. You can understand springing off into sort of what obviously now is clearly buck wild theories, like being able to <laughs> basically build a Mjolnir and, and, you know, control things like that. But, you know, there's a, yes. it is, it's not. It's not unrelated to actual science, but it is definitely not actual it's, science. Yeah, it's underpinned by a an ontology which is called anthroposophy, which is the the belief that there is a, a, a tangible spiritual realm that is adjacent to the physical realm and that if you try hard enough, that spiritual realm is accessible to people mm-hmm. and that is the the ontology that underpins all of this like the, the the that is how they saw the world that there was a spiritual realm that that spiritual realm was very 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 real and that if they tried hard enough they could get it and the thing with that kind of belief is that every time every time that pendulum moves over a toy boat and it happens to be in a hundred mile radius of a real boat, then that's proof yeah. that it was real. Yeah. And every time you try and find a missing dictator, 
that missing dictator turns up within a hundred mile radius of where you were looking, then that's proof that it works. And that you can, and they like, we're doing a huge amount of research into this stuff and they had multiple departments and institutes and this and like research facilities that were looking into these things and every time one gets something that's even vaguely right then that counts as a a bing (laughs) and it, it reinforces your belief basically and that's that was unhelpful for them. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> it was, you know, they had the Office of Folklore Research, which was fun. That was, they were very obsessed with runes, lots and lots of runes. And they were creating Aryan rituals and Aryan celebrations mm-hmm. that could effectively replace Christian ones because Christian ones were not Aryan enough. So lots of solstice festivals to I celebrate guess the sun. Christian rituals are very heavily tied in with Jewish people. <laughs> yes. Now, where this gets less, what the fuck, and more, what the fuck, mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell the difference there, is the fact that the reason that they were able to do all of this while still very effectively fighting a six-year war mm-hmm. is that they had an enormous slave population of Jews and gay people and communists and Romani. Everyone that they thought was bad. And they were, they had a huge slave workforce, basically, that were running these experiments that were being used in the human experimentation Mm -hmm. when they were trying to create, you know, all of the human experimentation that was done in concentration camps was done fueled by these beliefs and was done in order to further the research when they're looking for super soldiers they're doing that by doing terrible terrible things to concentration camp prisoners Mm -hmm. when they are fucking about with building anti-gravity machines which they were using like uranium and things in they were just letting people carry uranium around Mm -hmm. not a great idea no and they were like they that's why they were able to put huge amounts of research resources in and still be disturbingly good at fighting the war mm-hmm. because they didn't have to sacrifice any of the people that they considered to be okay yeah basically if it had been any other country then they would have had to sacrifice some of their own workforce who would therefore be taken away from their armies from the war um, effort in general yes exactly yeah. and this you know they considered this the war effort it just wasn't helpful <laughs> no no decidedly um, not but like the fact that that they had millions and millions of people in work like this is what the workforce were doing is they they were working on these kind of things and mm. this is what they were being sacrificed for and it is the story of the concentration camps and the final solution and all the rest of it is not very well told in in history classes no and it is not explained very well and it makes it seem like the nazis came and then the final solution started in 1933 and it didn't it didn't start until much much later yeah for the the majority of the war they were oh they were slave labor camps right they were the, the vast majority of the time this is what they were using those camps for is for 
human labor so that they didn't have to sacrifice anyone else Mm. yeah and we mentioned this at the beginning which is operation barbarossa and how they're ancient aliens ancient people's ancient nonsense (laughs) ice stuff affected this so operation barbarossa is the invasion of russia basically the (laughs) attempt the belief that they could march into russia a huge mostly empty country full of virulent nationalists controlled by their government and in the middle of winter and win (laughs) because Mm -hmm. effectively they believed so there's two things with Operation Barbarossa. Partly, they believe that Nordic soldiers being descended from Aryans are therefore better, and also coming from an ice place were inherently better prepared for fighting than Russian, in inverted commas, slabs, and mm-hmm. would just cope. So they did not equip them particularly well. Mm-hmm. And secondly, they had an ice theory institute, which they used to try to predict the weather using astrology and that institute which was another one of Himmler's many pet projects predicted that the Russian winter would be very mild anyway Mm -hmm. it was Um, not no Um, (laughs) yeah and the Russian army just sent masses of soldiers after soldiers because they had the people to spare a lot of people in Russia yeah much like the Nazis they were very keen on not valuing human life very much yeah, so um, they just were the, the they were a disposable force. Yeah, and they and as it turns out, they were considerably better prepared because they lived there, lived through it. Yeah, <laughs> um, they had some kind of uh, preparation for it, which surprised everybody. Mm. And many, 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 many people died as a result. It is one of those sort of excellent examples of this as well, because when you learn about, well, at least when I learned about Operation Barbarossa at school, it was just, you know, the Germans didn't prepare enough for the winter and the Russian army was massive and that's why it was such a disaster. But you never get told that they literally thought that they were inherently going to be stronger in the winter than the Russian army, like because of mystical reasons. Um, It's great. I mean, it's not great. A lot of people died very horribly, and that is (laughs) obviously bad, but it's just, you know, it adds a little colour to the anecdote. This was always my problem with learning modern history, I think, because they would say the Red Germans didn't prepare properly, so they lost. And you go, but why didn't they prepare properly? Um, This is also why I'm bad at maths, because I go, yeah, but why? Yeah, Yeah, I think in this case it's a particularly pertinent question, because (laughs) the... I mean, Germany was a force to be reckoned with. They did this. It was a very successful war up until they lost, and uh, yeah, they managed it was to achieve a, very a lot of their aims. Um, and yet, they failed so spectacularly in this one crucial area. And it is just really interesting to know that that was so that is such why. a buck wild reason. Yeah, um, I mean, it does. We've been saying the word the... buck wild a, a lot, but it's it's you know relevant. <laughs> It is, and I have been doing my best. I've been failing quite a lot, but I have been doing, doing my best not to use ableist language. Um, and Vokwald is a useful way to not say something worse. Um, yes. I, I'm aware that I've said many things, but I try. And yeah, we tr- it's, it's like... I mean, no one's perfect. No, no one is perfect. And this subject is a test of anyone's strength. 
with, <laughs> yes, with a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add? I think we've covered a lot of a lot of things. Okay. Basically, the Nazi war effort was completely bonkers, but also completely horrific at a very <laughs> fundamental level. Everything about it yes. was wrong. And wrong in the objective sense uh, of science and wrong in the subjective sense of morality. Like, everything about it was fundamentally wrong. And they came up with some buckwild ideas and hurt a whole bunch of people in the pursuit of them. Um, Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I don't like Nazi comparisons. Because I think that the more you say it's like the Nazis the more you dilute the genuine, like, existential, to-the-core horror of what the Nazis were. And... Yes, I think... hmm. I think there are other comparisons that can be used. Sure. I think it's dangerous to to compare things to Nazism in ways that uh, lets you dismiss those things as inherently inhuman because i think it's important to remember that people who do horrible things are still people Mm. um there it it is this side of things is important to consider because it points out the catastrophic effects of essentially ignoring valid and authentic and well interrogated science and that is something that is also that's also something that's unnerving, unnerving about the rise of the Oh, right now, yeah. is that it's so bound up in um, pseudo-psychology and ignoring climate change and all of these sorts of um, anti-scientific yeah. areas. The, and I think I that's think also kind of important to note. It is. I think the alt-right version of Nazi esoterica is that particular brand of evangelical Christianity that is like n- almost non-biblical um yeah. which celebrates and it's the same thing like when when you talk about Himmler as as dismissing everything he didn't understand as being jewish that's exactly what happens in the evangelical church there's fear yeah. of considering ideas that are foreign to you um but i think there's a second branch as well which is sort of the men's rights activists yeah. um psychologically well pseudo-psychologically um analyzing people in ways that are just (laughs) and not at all supported by any real psychology and taking that as gospel um yes yeah it's a similar i think it's a similar sort of mentality yeah and it is it's unpleasant it is yeah but i think that answered the question yeah the question the answer was no no, but but they did do other stuff (laughs) and that stuff is something else is very specific we'll put the links to the books that we read in the notes there is a a lapsum's quarterly article as well about world ice theory which is by also by eric kerlander who have been calling by a completely different name for this entire episode but we'll ignore that and hitler's monsters is great it's like new out and you can get it in normal bookshops it's not like a 200 pound academic book it's like properly readable and has Mm -hmm. so much stuff in it that is stressful (laughs) what are we going to talk about next time next time we are going to talk about one of my favorite subjects um this question is from at sir james a lot 
Um, and his question is, why was Christianity adopted over, say, some North African religion or even mm, Judaism? Very good question. It is a good, fun question. Like, why did Christianity win, basically? Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I love talking about early Christianity. <laughs> going to be a seven-hour episode where <laughs> I just sit and read to you from the, like, apocryphal gospel of James and things. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was good, wasn't it? I feel kind of depressed now, to be honest. Yeah, it was fun for a while, and then it got less fun. And it went downhill. Yeah, it does. It tends to do that when you start talking about experimenting on humans and that sort of thing. It does. Mm. Yeah, but if you have a question, then you can send us a message at at sexyhistorypod on Twitter, mm-hmm. or you can email us at sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or one day I'll remember this more than once every, like, ten episodes. We have Facebook as well. Oh, we do. I always forget we have Facebook. And that is Sexy History Pod, because they would not let us have the word sex in the title. It's, <laughs> uh, a, it's a family show over there. So it's SXY History Pod. <laughs> but it's probably not the most reliable method if you're wanting to ask a question, because we do constantly forget that it exists. Yeah, well, I do get the mess- the things on my phone when people ask me questions. So if you do, like, say something there, I will see it, and Oliver will see it. It's just that I always forget to mention it here. <laughs> and if you leave us reviews and like us and subscribe and do the other stuff, we love that. That makes us happy. It's very, very good. And until next time, I am at Nuclear Teeth. And I am at J9 and If. And our excellent producer Oliver is at Kiwa. That's it. Yeah. Bye, Janina. Bye, Emma.